Thank you, Francis, for your prayers and for reading the scriptures. He's applying for the title as one of the hardest working men at Cornerstone, uh, ministering in the premarital ministry, our children's ministry, and also overseeing uh, Whittier Flock. Thank you, brother. Reiterate um, Elder Bob's request for prayer for our Kazakhstan team. Huey is leaving this Wednesday, and Elder Bob and Pastor Marcus are leaving a week from um, this Friday. Six hours of instructions for two weeks, teaching on evangelism and apologetics to about 25, almost 30 Kazakh pastors. First time in the history of the country there where they have um, biblical training, biblical training for pastors in the Kazakh language. Double translation again. English to Russian, Russian to Kazakh. A Kazakh student asks a question, they translate it to Russian, translate it back to English. So it really produces patience in the heart of the instructors ministering in the institute. So let's be in prayer for them. It's a rigorous 24-hour flight time, travel time, to arrive, and there's no room or not time for jet lag. As soon as you land, you have to be ready to go, and, and they'll be meeting with Pastor Bakachan Mukashev, uh, Salvation Way Baptist Fellowship, and ministering at the church, encouraging Bakachan and Sasha is coming out to Bible study. He got saved uh, through our team last this past summer, encouraging him, the saints at the church, ministering to the institute. Oleg has emailed us a few months ago asking us to partner in a greater way with the institute. So Elder Boss will be talking to him, strategizing for future ministry. So a lot, so a lot of things are on the plate for the next two weeks. So I ask you. Uh, to be in prayer, and rightfully so, because the subject of our study this morning from John 14 is the subject of prayer. And just to um, prepare our minds in the subject, let me just read to you a few quotes from um, godly men who have gone before us. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees. When he is on his knees, there he comes face to face with God. It is the ultimate test of a man's spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as a Christian people so much as our prayer life. Ultimately, therefore, a man discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, in prayer, alone with God. Pastor Ian Bounds, in his book, Purpose in Prayer, reminds us how we must cultivate our fellowship with the Lord through prayer. He wrote, prayer is not a meaningless function or a duty. It is not to be crowded into the busy or the weary ends of the day. Intimacy requires development. We can never know God as it is our privilege to know Him by brief and fragmentary and unconsidered repetitions of intercessions that are scattered throughout the day. That is not the way in which we can come into communication with Heaven's King. The goal of prayer is the year of God, a goal that can only be reached by patient and continued and continuous waiting upon Him pouring out our hearts to Him and permitting Him to speak to us. Only by doing so can we expect to know Him 
As we come to know Him better, we shall spend more time in His presence and find that presence a constant and ever-increasing delight. As believers, we know instinctively that prayer is essential to our lives. But I don't know what the experience is for you, but every time I hear quotes on prayer by men like Bounds or Mueller or Lloyd-Jones, Half my heart is inspired, half my heart is crushed, because I understand the privilege and the sheer blessing of prayer. At the same time, I am confronted by my own inadequacies, by my, by my own failures, by my own weakness in this area of prayer. A writer, Dean Vaughn, once said that prayer is one of the most difficult disciplines in the Christian life. He said, if I wish to humble anyone, just ask one question. Ask them, ask him about his prayer life. It is one of our greatest blessings and at the same time one of our greatest struggles. A major denomination interviewed 3,000 of their own faithful members who attended a Christian conference. And they asked them, how, many t- how, many, how long do you spend? How many minutes, how many hours on average do you spend in prayer per day? And when they added up and averaged all the responses, it came to five minutes a day in prayer. Well, they said, okay, this is kind of skewed. Let's, let's just get the pastors, right? The ministers, the pastors, and set them apart and average their time in prayer per day. And pastors averaged seven minutes. Just two minutes more than the average Christian. Pastor Felonin said, of all the duties enjoined by Christianity, none is more essential and none is more neglected than prayer. J.C. Ryle said, I once thought in my ignorance that most people prayed and that many Christians prayed. I have lived to think differently now. I have come to the conclusion that the great majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. A well-seasoned, aged pastor, minister of the gospel, after ministering for decades in the church, his conclusion is, a great majority of Christians, they don't pray you know, limited time in prayer. It's not their prayer is weak. They don't pray at all. Prayer life is absent in most Christians. Prayer must not be a little habit that is tacked on to the Christian life. We must remember that our Christian life began with prayer. And God willing, it will end with prayer. And like me, if you're finding this morning, you agree. I, I, I find it difficult, Pastor James. It is a challenge for me. I am confronted with inadequacies in my prayer life. If prayer to you is a foreign language, you know, you can be a few languages, but prayer is a foreign language to you. If you have forgotten the sheer privilege and joy and the power that we have through prayer, I believe John 14 will be a great help to you, great encouragement to you. As your pastor, it is my prayer that our study this morning will transform once and for all your prayer life, as I believe it has for me, that the promise that Christ gives in these verses, 13 and 14, or once for all, just radically 
transform how we spend our mornings, how we spend our evenings. Again, as we go to John 14, remember that there is one major theme of this chapter. Our Lord is facing the cross and He knows that in a few hours all these disciples are deserted Him and He will be tortured and persecuted by His enemies and He will be hung on a cross as a curse from God. Uh, he will be considered anathema and He will be separated from the God He loves. And He understands that as He had told His disciples that He will leave them in this previous passage. And as He had told His disciples that all of them will deny the Lord. And as He had told them that Peter himself will deny the Lord, that these three statements have greatly caused just trouble, anxiety, discouragement, heartache. The disciples, their hearts are melting. Their hearts are broken as they hear the words of Christ. And Christ understands that. So instead of just thinking about Himself, our Lord turns to minister and encourage them. And He tells them in verse 1, and He reminds them in verse 27, Let not your hearts be troubled. Stop. I mean, literally, the verb tense is stop. Do not allow your hearts to be anxious. And here are the cures to your heart. Believe in Me. You believe in God, verse 1. You believe in the covenants, the promises that God has made. Now believe in My promises and the rest of John 14, he, our Lord gives six just precious promises to Christians that cure all our spiritual aches, all our spiritual pains. The first promise was that His leaving is not permanent. His leaving is temporary. That as He goes, He's going for a purpose to prepare a room for us individually. And that is singular in the Greek. So that He is preparing a room for all the believers in the Father's house. And He promises, I will come back. And when I come back, I will, I will send the archangel Michael. I won't send Gabriel. I won't send you know, one of the low-rung uh, angels. I will come myself. I will call you my na- by name so that you might be with me forever. And Paul spoke of that in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's the first promise. And just imagine the joy of the disciples experienced as they heard that yes, you are indeed leaving, but you are coming back. I mean, just, it must have just alleviated their pain just so much to hear the promises of Christ. But not only that, he continues that promise, promise 2, verse 6. Christ says, follow me. All these Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, they they're saying that they are the way to God. They're wrong. They don't know God. They don't know the Father. He promises that He is the way, the truth, and the, fa- the, truth and the life. And that no one comes to the Father but by Me. And He promises, if you follow Me, you're, I will lead you to the Father. Well, it is at this point, Philip interrupts. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Now, we, we are not told Philip's exact motivation in making this request, but we can safely say that by this statement, Philip is indicting the insufficiency of Christ's promises alone. He's saying to Christ, it's not alone, it's not enough that you promised us these things. We need proof. It's like somebody telling you, Okay, you promised me, but how about 
signing here, this IOU. We're signing on this contract. I understand, you know, you're a man of your word and we shook hands, but how about, you know, we put something in writing and that will be enough for my trust. Well, that is what Philip is saying. Philip is saying, Lord, it sounds great, these promises, but it's not enough for me. It's not enough for us. Show us the Father. Then it's enough. Now, before we judge Philip for his lack of faith, for his cynicism, we must admit to a degree that this is the kind of heart that this world produces. Um, this is the reality of our hearts to different degrees produced by this world. Um, the world hardens our hearts. The world teaches us not to believe people, not to trust people, to not be so gullible. The world, right, teaches us to be suspicious. Only a simpleton, only a child believes people's promises. Children, by nature, believe what, what you tell them. But through disappointments, and through broken promises, children learn at, a, at some point in their lives that you can't just simply trust people's promises. You resign yourself to reality. You want to protect your heart because you realize to the degree you trust someone and you're disappointed, to that degree you are ashamed. Therefore, after a while, you're so intent on protecting your heart that promises of others and even your own promises mean very little or even mean nothing at all. We live in a day and age where public covenants of marriage are broken by 50% of the people that make them. So marriage vows are not worth the paper that they're written on. And so we live in a very cynical, jaded, suspicious world. And this is not just limited to the world. I see this in, in Christians. I see this in many believers' lives where the passion, the joy, the wide-eyed faith in Christ, that, that, that heart, that desire, that zeal is gone. You know, they've, they've lost heart. They're just tired. And you ask them, well, what happened to you? What happened to your faith and your love and your heart for Christ? Love for the saints. What happened to that first love for Christ? And they say, well, life happened. What's happened to me? Life happened to me. You see it, even with believers. And I see it. I mean, you preach the truth. And there's a, just a glazed look. You're just jaded by the world. Jaded by pro broken promises. Promises made to them by others that's been broken or promises they have made to God, to others they have broken. And so truth is spoken. and doesn't matter. It's just, it's not enough. And so here is Philip. You know, he's a man. He's, he knows the ways of the world. And here he is listens to the promises of Christ, and he says, it's not enough. It's not enough. I need something to believe you, Lord. And what I need is to see the Father for myself. Then I will believe 
And there's somewhat um, a basis for this because God did this in the Old Testament. God did this. Turn with me to Genesis 15. And we will see um, God, Yahweh, making a, a covenant with Abraham. Covenant concerning his seed. Covenant concerning the land. And to confirm this covenant with Abraham, God the Father appears himself to Abraham um, to verify his promise. Genesis 15, verse 1, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Verse 3, Abraham said, You have given me no children. Verse 4, The word of the Lord came to him, This man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, and if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then look at verse 6, Abraham didn't need anything more. The word of the Lord was enough for Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord said, not only that, I will give you the land to take possession of it. Verse 8, Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Birds of prey came down. Abraham Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish that nation Verse 15, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace. Verse 16, the fourth generation, God promises your descendants will come back here and take possession of this land and your seed will prosper. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is how... Old, in the Old Testament times, covenants were ratified, how contracts were signed. Uh, when two parties would come upon a contract to exchange land, to buy land, uh, to make a covenant to go to battle together, they would bring animals, cut them in half, and if it was a bilateral covenant, two parties making a contract together, both of them will walk down in the middle of these two animals, middle of these animals that are cut in two, saying if either one broke the contract, that, that's what would happen to them. They would be killed and cut in half. What God revealed himself to Abraham, and they didn't walk down that aisle separated by the carcasses of the animals together. God walked alone saying, this is a unilateral covenant. This is what I will do. This is my promise to you, Abraham. Unconditional unilateral covenant. And then in chapter 17, the Lord himself, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and confirmed his covenant to Abraham. Well, this is the background of the Old Testament, and Philip knew this. 
So this is what Philip was asking for. A tangible sign to verify Christ's promises. Christ's words, it's not enough. Show us something tangible. Our Lord responds to him with a gentle rebuke. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and Philip, you still do not know me? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not know that whoever has seen me has seen the Father? Do you not know, do you not realize that we are one, not only in essence, but in our speech, that whatever I have said, I have spoken with complete authority with the Father, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not my own words, not my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, who does His work, works. The reminder of John 1.18, No one has seen God, but God, the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God. He did not, and He does not speak independently of the Father. Everything He says is full, fully affirmed by God the Father with full affirmation and full authority. John 12, 49 and 50, our Lord said, I, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Whatever I say is just what the Father has, set, has told me to say. Christ says, my, my words must be sufficient for you because these are the words of God the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. At least believe in my works. At least believe in the miracles that I performed, that the Father is with me. And so with that foundation, our Lord gives the third promise. It is a radical, incredible promise. And when we study truth and we understand it. When, when you really, your eyes are open to the implications and just the profundity, just the sheer magnitude of these truths, there is a physical response, a visceral response, an emotional response. I think Rex was telling me years ago when he understood the concept of the New Testament church. He was lying in bed and he got up out of bed. He, he physical response and he couldn't go to bed when he understood the purity, the authority, the power of the New Testament church. Elder Bob, likewise, he told that, tells that story often. I was driving his car, listening to Q&A by MacArthur. He'd been a Christian for 10, 15 years. And in that in a moment, the Bible became clear. He understood doctrine and theology and its application to life. He said the heavens opened up. You know, it, just, it was just time stopped and, and his eyes were opened. Well, I was studying this passage this week at Starbucks. crowd of people around me, you know, music, coffee. And I understood what Christ was saying. It was a personal response. I, I, it was just, it's just so radical what Christ is saying in verse 13 and 14. You know, I was getting emotional in Starbucks, right? 
um, I had to kind of like stop myself and and uh, I'm not in my room, my study by myself. I can't get on my knees and start praying. They'll get worried that I know something. Uh, <laughs> just consider what Christ says here. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Christ promises, a personal promise, personal covenant. That whatever we ask, He'll answer us. Listen, the, the unsaved, God is not obligated to listen to the unsaved. Yet He listens to their prayer. And has common grace shown to the unsaved. God shows common grace in listening to their prayers. And sometimes when the unsaved say, Lord, save me, He answers. He responds, but He's not obligated. He had carved out a people among all these pagan worlds from a man, Abraham. And he said, not because of any goodness in you, any inherent righteousness or worthiness in you, I choose to love you. And therefore, through your people, I'll establish this temple. And when the people of Israel will come to this temple and fulfill the demands of the law and offer up sacrifices, 2 Chronicles 7, and when they pray in this temple, or towards this temple, God says, I will listen to your prayers and I will answer. Jesus said to the disciples and to all new covenant Christians that God will listen to all our prayers. Regardless of the state of our hearts. Regardless of our obedience or our lack of obedience regardless of anything of our, of our lives as followers of Christ, He will not only incline His ear towards us and give us the grace of listening to our prayers, but He will do whatever we ask in His name for the glory of the Father. All because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because of what He has fulfilled, what He has accomplished the demands of the law has been fulfilled. The curtain is torn in two. We're able to approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. Whatever we ask, whatever we ask, He says, He will do. That's what Christ says. I was talking to Dale this morning, and there's a mystery here. There was a paradox. Now, I don't understand how this all works out. I, I don't. Evangelism, the sovereignty of God. I don't know how that works out. There is a mystery, that, a paradox that extends into eternity that my feeble mind cannot comprehend. Likewise, in the area of prayer, I don't understand fully God's sovereignty of His will being executed in the world, and yet Christ says, whatever you ask, whatever you pray, whatever you cry out to Me, I will answer you. He promises that. I don't know how that fits. But what I do know is He made this promise. And He is good on His Word. And He has given us this privilege. He has given us this authority. He has given us this blessing of asking Christ Himself. And He promises that He will do it. John sixteen twenty four. He says, Until now you have not asked for anything in My name. Ask in My name. 
and He will do it. He promises. There are two requirements, two conditions for answered prayer. The first is, until now I have not asked for anything in my name. Ask in my name and you will receive your requests. In the Bible, a name is much more than an identifier, a label, as it tends to be in our culture. Personal names in the Bible had their meaning. A name represented the nature of the person. There was an indelible, essential connection between the name and the person behind that name. And so to pray in Jesus' name, first of all, it means to pray in and under His authority, under His power, under His might, under His divine right. Luke 10, 17, the disciples came back and He said, Lord, the demons flee, not in the name of Peter, not in the name of Thomas or John, the demons, when we say the name of Jesus Christ, there's authority, and these demons flee. Acts 3, 6, the beggar said, will you give me something to Peter and John? And Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. By the authority of Christ, rise up and walk. And he did. Paul, by the authority of Christ, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he commands the church to obedience. So to pray in Jesus' name means to pray under His authority. Not what we have done, not who we are, but who Christ is and what He has done. Secondly, to pray in Jesus' name means that He is the focus of our faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the basis upon which we pray. We don't trust in the act of prayer. There is no magical incantation, a magical formula where which we believe you pray in this manner, in this way, in this position, in this location, that God would answer. No. God answers my prayer because of the object of faith is Jesus Christ. John 1.12 To all who believed in His name, He gave the authority to become children of God. Acts 2.21 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 4.12, there is one name given to man, which men might be saved under heaven. The name Jesus Christ. So just like we're saved by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are also, we experience the answer prayer when we pray with faith in His name as well. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you know... I remember as a young boy praying for things and praying, okay, I'm going to pray for one minute and for that one minute I'm going to believe 100% so that I will get what I'm praying for. So I would pray and I would just believe I did it. Great, I'm going to get it. Sometimes we pray like that, don't we? Where answered prayer is dependent upon our, our righteousness, our holiness, our, our faith even, or our amount of faith. No, the object of faith is Christ. That's the basis upon which we pray, and that's the basis upon which God answers our prayer. The first condition is that we pray in His name. And it's not just a a sentence that we tack on at the end of our prayers. No, it means that our prayers are not based on our authority that we don't pray by our righteousness, our works, our sacrifices. 
It also means that when we pray, we don't believe in anyone else, anything else. That our prayers are completely based upon the finished work of our Lord on the cross. It is our faith in Him. That's the first condition that is to be met if our prayers are to be answered. And second condition is, verse 13b, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus promises that He will answer all our petitions so that God might be glorified in Him. This is a question we need to ask ourselves before we pray and ask of God. We need to ask ourselves, will God be glorified in this request? Will God be glorified in this request? If God answers his prayer, is the Lord's name exalted? Is God's name honored? Is God's glory extended through the four corners of this world as the gospel, as the water covers the sea? Is that the reality? 24-hour witness of fitness. Um, talking to a guy, you know, again, this past week, and we played and we lost. And I was telling him, man, you know, losing here hurts. It must hurt so much to lose at the Olympics. That was my way into evangelism. I don't know. Whatever works, I guess. And I was talking to him, and he, he said, you, you know, he believes in TVN and Benny Hinn and the prosperity gospel. And I asked him this. When you pray... When you pray for a Mercedes-Benz, is God glorified? When you pray for a large house, when you pray for health, wealth, and prosperity, is God glorified in that? Is that, is that how God is glorified? What about you? When you pray, when you petition God, what do you pray for? If we were to take a survey this morning, we would be discouraged by the topics of prayer, the focus of our prayer lives praying for things in this world, a healing, place to live, a job, a car, a husband, a wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, promotion, more money, so on and so on. No, before we ask God anything, we need to ask this question. Is God glorified by this request? Is God glorified when He answers this Request. By way of repetition, verse 14, Christ says again, if you ask me anything in my name. Just in case. You know, verse 13 was prefaced by truly, truly, I say to you. That's repetition again. That's emphasis again. When Christ says truly, truly, he's just, I am telling you the truth. He repeats, truly, truly. And then in verse 14 again, this way of emphasis, that there is no doubt, no misunderstanding, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. What a radical concept. Jesus will do it. Jesus will answer our prayers. We ask in His name for the glory of God. Now, by by way of instruction and reminder, um, what are the things that believers should be praying for above all other things? Before we pray for our material needs, before we pray for our, quote, emotional needs, there are two things that directly exalt the glory of God. 
magnify God's glory that all believers ought to be praying for. Our foremost petition, our primary concern in prayer must revolve around fellow believers and their conduct in the world. Right? We studied this in Second uh, Titus chapter 2. Remember? That when believers, if our conduct is praiseworthy, if our conduct is righteous and noble, God's name is exalted. When Christians are hypocritical, when Christians live in a sinful manner, when Christians live selfishly, sinfully, then God's name is blasphemed. God's honor is denigrated. God's glory is diminished. And it's directly tied to the conduct of the church. Right? Therefore, as Christians, and God's Christ said, I will answer your request for the glory of the Father. Therefore, our foremost prayer, our first prayer, must be, it ought to be, conduct of fellow believers. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Paul said with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling, that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and fulfill every act prompted by faith. Verse 12, he explains why we pray this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Paul says, we pray without ceasing for your conduct that you might walk worthy. Why? So that Christ Jesus' name might be glorified in you. Likewise, in Colossians 1, 10 and 12, Paul prayed, we pray this, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, that you may please Him in every way, that you may bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance, patience, and joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share an inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. So foremostly, before we pray for anything else, before we ask God for anything else, we must petition for fellow believers. And Christ says, you pray for fellow Christians and their walk, He will answer it. Let me just give you a list of things that we ought to be praying for, for fellow believers. Ephesians 4.23 We ought to be praying for another that we will grow in humility. We should be praying for fellow Christians. Grow in humility. Romans 13.13 We should be on our knees praying for fellow Christians that they'll be pure. 1 Corinthians 7.17 We should be praying for one another for contentment. They'll be content in God's sovereignty. Whatever their lot in life, they'll be satisfied and joyful. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We should be praying for one another that each other would have faith. Are you praying for me that I would have faith in my walk? Are you praying for one another? We should be praying for righteousness. Ephesians 2.10 Philippians 1.27 Praying for unity among the brethren. Ephesians 4.2 Gentleness. Colossians 1.11 Patience. Ephesians 5.23 
love. That we would love one another as Christ loved us. The sacrificial, eternal, undeserved love that Christ showed the church. In like manner, the husband should love the wife. That we would show that kind of love towards one another. We should pray that we would have joy. Fellow believers would have joy. Colossians 1.11 Colossians 1.3 Thanksgiving Colossians 1.10 That we would abound in knowledge. Ephesians 5.15 and 16 Wisdom We would abound. 3 John 3 and 4 And then finally Colossians 1.10 John 15 and 16 That we would bear much fruit. That's what our Lord said, right? The disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go on their fruit, fruit that will last. And this is to my Father's glory. When a believer does not bear fruit, it dishonors God. When believers bear fruit, it glorifies the Father. That should be foremost on our prayer. Second area of prayer that believers must be praying for for next group we must pray for are the lost those who are not saved we see examples of this throughout scripture Acts 7 Deacon Stephen his last words were prayer for the lost who were murdering him Lord do not hold this sin against them That was his last word. He was praying. His last breath was a prayer for the lost. Apostle Paul, Romans 9, talking about his fellow Israelites. He says, I speak the truth in the Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and a seizing anguish in my heart. If I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, I would do it. And he says in Romans 10.1, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul pleads to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.1 that when the church gathers together, that first of all, the priority of the church should be to pray for the lost. That requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, to be made for everyone, believers, but especially non-Christians. The context tells us that. That evangelistic prayer must be a theme, a thread of, of, of believers gathering together, a priority every time believers are gathered. Paul says, Parakaleo, he exhorts, he urges, he begs that they do this, that they pray for the lost. The reason is, verse 3, it is good, it pleases God, our Savior. God is pleased when the church, when Christians pray for the lost. Why? Because that's the heart of God, verse 4. God desires all men to be saved. What does that verse mean? It means that God desires all men to be saved. God's heart, God's desire is every non-Christian family, friend, co-worker, acquaintance, a stranger, God's heart is that he or she might be saved and know the Lord. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth. God pleads with the unsaved. For I am God, there is no other. Ezekiel 18.23 Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. I have no pleasure in in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promises but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How it encourages us as we pray for those we love who do not know Christ. The Bible is clear. God's desire is that it's for their salvation. God desires that they will know the Lord, he desires their repentance and their salvation. Coupled with the promise of Christ, how much more ought we pray? Well, with our time remaining, let me just keep share with you just three practical um, ways to, to help your help our prayer lives. You know, I the issue is not about desire. I think all Christians desire to pray. If you don't, then you're not a Christian. Period. Christians desire to pray. But from the desire to the application, there's a disconnect. We just focus on the desire without making practical steps to carry out the desire personally in our lives. So if, if I end my sermon right now and we pray then really, practically, there's very little benefit, I believe. We must be intentional to carry out our desires to hold Christ to His Word that He will answer our prayers. Let me share with you three just hindrances to prayer and how you can overcome these things. First of all, the first hindrance to prayer is poor lifestyle. Poor lifestyle. We love to add, but we hate to subtract. We want to just add prayer to our lives. That's not going to work. Let me paraphrase John Piper. He said, the greatest hindrance, I'm paraphrasing, the greatest hindrance to prayer, it's not poison, but it's apple pie. The greatest hindrance to our prayer life is practically our lifestyle. You watch four hours of TV a day. Come on. You know, like, you know, you're immersed with music. Um, you have a messy room. You know, you have just a, your room's just chaotic. Room's a mess. You have a, dis, you have disorderly life. You're not a disciplined life. You don't wake up on time. You know, you set the alarm. You know, and you snooze that thing, and you just hurry up from work, you eat meals in front of your TV, you're surfing the net, you're just, you have too many friends, too many commitments, your, your, your life is a pit stop, your life is just a hub where you stop as you do something else with people. I mean, just, that's, a, that's a hindrance to prayer, your lifestyle. To, to have a prayer life um, 
we need to practically change how we live our lives so that our lives are conducive to regular prayer. Our homes, um, our rooms help us to pray. Posture of prayer. Second hindrance tied with that is lack of discipline. Albert Day said, we Protestants are an undisciplined people. Therein lies the reason for much of the dearth of spiritual insights and serious lack of moral power. You know, we point our fingers at the monks. You know, we point our fingers at the nuns. and you know, We give thumbs down to the priests. Right. Theologically, rightfully so. But not practically. Samuel Zwemer said, prayer is self-discipline. The effort to realize the presence and power of God must be produced with much effort. To pray is to grow in grace. To tarry in the presence of the King requires sacrifice. Price must be paid to be a man of prayer. Salvation is free, as I say often. A prayer is not. If you're going to be a man of prayer, you have to pay. And you pay through discipline. By planning. By preparing. By training yourself towards godliness. First Timothy 4. Would you do that? Would you train yourself? Not for a temporal prize. But for the eternal prize. Of meeting with Christ. In prayer. And the final hindrance to prayer is just simply pride. Our own pride is the major obstacle we must overcome before we can pray for God's will to be done in our lives. It is pride that causes Satan to rebel against God. Pride causes unbelievers to reject God. And it is pride that causes believers not to pray because we have a high estimation of ourselves, a high estimation of our maturity and our spiritual lives. We do not see that prayer is a matter of survival. That prayer is not an option. To pray for God's will, to earnestly and sincerely pray, we must abandon our own will, our own self-dependence, self-confidence, our self-sufficiency, and desperately cling to Christ for all things. That is... The only way to humility, only way to cast aside pride is by clinging to God for survival. Brethren, what a great privilege, great promise, great power that Christ has given us. May we endeavor, resolve in our hearts, never to neglect this discipline again, that we would hold Christ to His words. Our gracious Lord, 
Christ who is truth. God who is not man that he should change his mind or son of man that he should repent. Oh Lord, grant us this courage in our hearts to cling to your promises that we will not give in to fear. That we will not give in to the fear that we might be ashamed or disappointed or we might be our hearts might be broken by yet another broken promise. Lord, grant us to know that the promise given to us is not only then the Lord and Savior, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our faith. May we fix our eyes on Him, the author, perfecter of our faith, the one who endured the cross, who has given us our salvation. Will we trust You for our salvation and yet not trust You for our requests, for our prayers, for our needs, praying for the saints and praying for the lost? Oh Lord, may You raise up faithful, mighty prayer warriors here in our church so that you be glorified as we see believers edified, the lost saved, all because of the prayers of the saints. We thank you for these promises. We know that we are not worthy of these promises. We thank you for this privilege. May we find you, and may you find us alone, day by day on our knees, calling upon your name, for the glory of the Father, prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.